This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up on this episode, we'll trace some of the big developments in the history of English fashion. Essentially, humans have been wearing clothes for tens of thousands of years. So fashion history really stretches back as far as humanity. We'll discover how much effort goes into making historically accurate costumes. Using the same tools and ideally the same materials that would have been used in the original time period. This can give us so much insight. And we'll tell you where you can learn to apply Georgian makeup. All that coming up in a few moments with fashion historian Amber Butchard. But first, let's sketch out for you what's coming up on the next few episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. English Heritage has been running Joust, hosting Joust for um, over 20 years. We use the same company, so they're very, very busy throughout the summer season, providing us with knights and horses and all the expertise that come alongside that. There's an element of truth in it, but there's an element of extremism in it. And of course, the term Bloody Mary, it taints the whole of her reign, whereas actually it is just one part of Mary's reign. And it also sits within a World Heritage site. And it puts the Iron Bridge in a category of some pretty esteemed monuments, such as you know, Hadrian's Wall, Stonehenge, but also further afield. It really puts it right up there with the best of the best. That's all to come here very soon on the English Heritage Podcast. But today, we're unpicking the history of fashion. It's fair to say that fashion and history are intrinsically linked to the development of cultures, peoples and countries all over the world. From the earliest times in the human story, we needed clothes to stay warm and fend off the elements. Well, joining me to trace the thread of clothing back through time is fashion historian Amber Butchart. Amber, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Now, as far as we know, how far back does fashion history go in England? Well, that's kind of a difficult question. If we go back far enough, for example, to the time of Boudicca, the queen of the Iceni tribe, we don't really have any evidence of writing from this period. So pre-Roman Britain, we've got no evidence of writing. But we do have some understanding of clothing and culture from this period, which is drawn from archaeological evidence and also from Roman sources. Now, it's quite difficult to know whether we should fully believe the Roman sources because they really viewed the tribes of late Iron Age Britain as barbarians. But they did leave us some sources and combined with archaeological evidence, we can start to build up a sort of basic picture. Essentially, humans have been wearing clothes for tens of thousands of years. So fashion history really stretches back as far as humanity. Which areas do you concentrate on most? I cover lots of different eras. I cover a lot of my work is thematic. So, for example, I wrote a book called Nautical Chic, looking at the sort of maritime origins of a lot of the clothes that we wear. So that covered various different periods from really from the sort of 17th, 18th century on through the 20th century. But I also, my most recent book called The Fashion Chronicles, Style Stories of History's Best Dressed, actually looks at sort of 5,000 years of human history through 100 key figures. So for that research, I was kind of going all over the place from the Ice Age right through to the Digital Age. So my work spans quite a lot of different areas. 
What's your favourite fashion period from English history then? Choosing my favourite period is always really difficult. I am actually a big fan of 18th century menswear, especially sort of around the 1770s, 1780s. I'm very keen on a silhouette that involves breeches and stockings. I like that a lot. But really, there is so much that you can draw from what people are wearing at any particular period in time. I'm interested in a really wide range. I find clothes a really fascinating medium through which we can understand the past. It's something we still have a very strong connection with today. We all get dressed in the mornings, even if we don't read fashion magazines, even if we don't care what's happening on the catwalks of Paris. We still all have to make some choices as to what we're wearing and how we're presenting ourselves to the world. And this has been the case throughout history. The desire to adorn the body, is ancient as well and so sort of unpicking these codes unpicking different layers of dress history can really offer great insight into the past well i was going to ask about how fashions change and how quickly they change did they move as quickly in the past as they seem to today no i mean i think that would be technologically impossible The state that we're in at the moment with the sort of rise of fast fashion is that we've sort of got ourselves into a position where the fashion world kind of constantly eats itself. It's really moving too fast. It's unsustainable. It's unethical. It's not environmentally friendly. It causes burnout throughout the industry as well. Designers often can't cope with the pace, the amount of work they're expected to produce not to mention the sort of global issues that we have as well with the separation of production and distribution. So no, absolutely not. It wouldn't have been possible. What we really see throughout history is a sort of general sort of speeding up throughout history. Obviously, once you hit the Industrial Revolution, things really jump forwards. We start to see textiles being mechanised, start to see the beginnings of mass production, of factory-produced clothing... And that really sets us on the path to the incredibly hectic pace that we find today. It's a bit like the 24-hour news cycle, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, the digital revolution as well has sort of really sped things up another notch. So now we've got e-commerce. You can see catwalk clothes or high street collections online, sometimes before or often before they even hit the shops. So there's the demand there before the product is even created. So, yeah, it's absolutely, you know, that's quite a good analogy. The 24-hour news cycle, it's like people are constantly hungry for new content, for new information, for new stimulation. And why do fashions change anyway? Is it just because of vanity or what? Well, that is a huge debatable question within fashion history and fashion studies as a discipline. Why do fashions change? Why do they change at different rates at different points in the world? You know, this is a sort of huge question. There are a number of theories. One theory is a theory about distinction, the idea that we want to both separate ourselves from other people, but also draw allegiances with some other people. So dressing similarly to people that we see ourselves in sort of similar cultural groups with, and then making sort of distinctions from people we view as separate to us. Now, historically, in England especially, this was largely done through class distinctions. So the aristocracy would be wearing something very, very different from toiling serfs, for example. 
as we've reached in the sort of 21st century, these distinctions have been broken down to a degree, but there is still this idea that we want to form allegiances with some people and make ourselves distinct from others. Now, one of the other theories about why fashions change, which is especially pertinent, I guess, to the 21st century is an economic theory. The idea that the system that we have in the UK and throughout Europe and America is largely a capitalist system. It's a system of um, mass manufacture and of selling. And in order to sell stuff, you've got to convince people that they need new things all of the time. So there are those two different theories, an economic theory and a sort of cultural theory about distinction. But it is a huge area that's almost sort of branches into philosophy and all kinds of different discussions could be brought out of this. And anthropology as well. It's almost like we're tribal. We're deciding which group we're going to belong to. Yes, exactly. Well, was there ever a point in history where men and women dressed similarly? There's a lot of talk today about gender neutral. And I suppose perhaps in the Middle Ages, things were maybe a bit more gender neutral, tunics and smocks. It wasn't quite universal, the tunics and smocks. You still tended to get women wearing something more akin to gowns that we envisage today. It was actually during that period that men began showing their legs a great deal, whereas for women, this was still quite a no-no. Especially in European history, the sort of gender divide through dress has been a reasonable constant, I would say. But this does differ in different places around the world. Gender has been expressed through dress in very, very different ways in different places um, throughout the world. So while I'm not sure that there was a period where men and women here were dressing exactly the same, there are certainly periods when it's been more similar. But this desire to create a sort of gender distinction is quite long lasting, especially here in England. What we see before the late 18th century is that often men could be dressed as spectacularly as women. I think today, or definitely in the 20th century, there was this idea that fashion was very much a woman's domain. And to be wanting to sort of beautify yourself and make yourself look spectacular, this was something that was inherently female. But this certainly is not the case if we go back further in history. There have been periods, I mean, think of how magnificent someone like Henry VIII looked. This kind of adorning yourself, this idea of power through spectacular clothing was something that's... um, an idea that for us today, things have definitely shifted today. That leads me on to my next question in a way, especially around the Henry VIII power image. Clothes are about status and making a statement, aren't they? Oh yes, definitely. Theories about why clothing for humans developed tend to rest on two different ideas. The idea of practicality, we need clothes for warmth, for survival, for protection. And another one is cultural ideas around modesty. We want to clothe ourselves to hide our bodies, essentially. But it's also about uh, making yourself look rich. If you have the finest uh, fabrics, then that conveys a lot of status, doesn't it? Well, yeah, absolutely. And this idea of cultural meanings to clothes, initially potentially coming from modesty, but then building on that, clothes become huge signifiers and huge communicators of various different ideas. Wealth, power, status being an absolutely key one, right from the ancient world going through to today to, you know, monarchs, if we think about Royal weddings, for example, something relatively recent, there's still this idea of clothing as communication. 
what can we read into what people are choosing to wear? So absolutely, clothes have never been neutral objects. They've always conveyed cultural messages and made cultural statements. Royals have certainly been in that tradition. I think of Princess Diana, also the Duchess of Cambridge, obviously someone who the ladies like to follow in terms of fashion. How much have commoners been influenced by royal dress over the centuries and were there punishments for dressing above your station? Well, historically, fashions would always begin in sort of aristocratic court circles around the monarchy. This is where power and wealth coalesced. And so this is where fashions would begin and would sort of generally sort of move out from the court circles, moving through the rest of society. So there would be a big impact on day-to-day fashion, obviously varying from sort of century to century. But absolutely, the court, the monarchy would be where fashions would originate. Let's talk a bit about makeup then. I believe one of the earliest recorded instances, and this might surprise you, of makeup is in the Neanderthals. Some research, I understand, emerged in 2010 by the University of Bristol. Um, Some scientists found pigments and glitter found in shells in a cave in Spain. However, I want to ask you, when did modern women start wearing makeup in England? Well, that's absolutely fascinating. It, It does surprise me that I hadn't heard that, but it also doesn't surprise me because the desire to sort of adorn and mark the body is really, really ancient. Even, for example, Utsi the Iceman, you know, a mummified body that was found in the Alps, dates back to about 3,345 BCE. And he was found with tattoos over his body. So this idea of adorning, of beautifying, or, you know, for some reason, marking the body is absolutely ancient. Now, when you say when did modern women begin wearing makeup, I guess it depends how you define modern, (laughs) firstly. And also, I think, again, it's important to get away from this idea that this has historically just been something that concerned women. Making up the body, decorating the body, painting the body is something that we find, well, again, you know, going back to Boudicca and the Iceni tribe, we get this information from these Roman sources, so we do need to take them with a little bit of salt, but this idea that they would paint themselves with woad as they were going into battle. So certainly, I think, moving away from the idea that this has just been something that women have done, it's quite important. Even, for example, during the Georgian era, or especially from the sort of late 17th century through to towards the end of the 18th century, men would quite happily wear quite a lot of makeup and cosmetics as well. As with fashions, trends for cosmetics kind of move in stages. Sometimes they're very, very popular. Sometimes a more sort of natural look is in vogue. But it's certainly something that has existed since antiquity. Now, looking at the Georgian period in England, how would we characterise female dress then? Well, the Georgian period is quite a huge period in British history. Women's dress went through quite a lot of different changes. What's also interesting throughout this era is that there's a lot of sort of competition and rivalry with France in terms of dress. Now, Paris had really set itself up as the centre of fashionable dress since the time of Louis XIV in the late 17th century. And from then on, really, you get this kind of jostling as to which can be the most fashionable place to live, which is the most fashionable centre. 
So we see some differences between English and French dress at this time. We also see some quite, what we imagine is very elaborate historical clothing, especially the type of clothes that would be worn at court. Very wide panniers, very, very, very expensive silks. At this time in England, we've got, from the end of the 17th century, we have a lot of Huguenot silk weavers fleeing France due to persecution and setting up in England especially around areas such as Spitalfields. And they're bringing their trades with them, they're bringing their, um, their skills with them and their knowledge. And we get this whole flourishing of a silk industry around the East End of London. Now, this really impacts the way people are dressing. We have these absolutely exquisitely beautiful woven silks. Textiles at this time are incredibly expensive. Some of the most expensive things you can own People would bequeath their clothing, their textiles in their wills. It was really something of, you know, absolute value to a family. So to express your wealth and your status, this idea emerges of showing as many textiles as you can on your body. Hence, we get these very wide panniers that really sort of act as a canvas almost for these silk weavers. When you say panniers, what does that mean? It's sort of structure that's worn beneath the skirts. It's the, yes. it's the structure that causes the skirts to sort of billow out. Exactly. And at this time in the uh, you know court dress in the sort of mid-18th century, we're seeing it come out very sharply at the sides. If you imagine those sort of historical period dramas where women have to turn to the side to get through a door, that's the kind of thing I'm imagining. As we move towards the end of the Georgian era, there are a number of momentous events that happen throughout the latter half of the 18th century. We have the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. We also have political revolution in France as well, which really has impacts throughout the whole of Europe. And so as we move into the beginning of the 19th century, and especially the Regency era here in England, we start to see dress that we would associate with Jane Austen. So sort of long white muslin gowns, the empire line, a very, very different look, a much more informal look and a bonnet. Yes, much more informal look than we've seen at earlier points in the Georgian era. So in terms of fashion history and in terms of political, economic, technological history, the Georgian era is incredibly rich. And what would the men wear? It would be wigs and breeches. Is that right? Uh, Yes, that would absolutely be right for a lot of the Georgian era. What we do see again towards the end as we sort of turn into the 19th century, again, is a sort of a slightly more informal look taking precedence. From the sort of latter half of the 18th century, there's a vogue for Anglomania, for sort of English menswear that starts to even dominate in France. So what we see is things like wool, clothes that you might wear for riding, for walking around your country estate. This kind of English country dressing becomes incredibly popular, not just in England, but also spreads into France. And these kind of fabrics and these kind of styles begin to take over the previous very flashy, very showy silks, you know, embroidered, brocaded velvets, things like this that had been worn by aristocratic men in the earlier hmm. part of the era. So fashion's moved from less city-centric looks to more countrified country house looks. 
in a way, yes, rather than city, it's kind of less court-defined looks, I guess. Um, in France, you know, Versailles is this centre of power, centre of um, fashionable spectacle as well. And it's a very, very different system to the system that we have in England, where although people meet at Parliament annually, there is also this kind of dispersal throughout the country to English estates. So it's sort of that difference between country estate dressing versus more urban court dressing, yes. Now, obviously, Amber, you are a historian. How difficult is it to recreate the historic costumes that we see on on TV or for reenactors at historic places? Well, for me, I absolutely love the research that goes into finding out how these items may have been constructed. In terms of the actual making, I very rarely do any of that myself. It goes to other way more skilled and talented people than I. What I love about understanding how clothes were created in the past is that we get a real sense of the amount of labour that really went into this. We've very much lost the sense of that today, again due to the rise of fast fashion. We're used to walking into a shop, buying something off the rack for a really quite a cheap price taking it home, wearing it a few times, that's it. We've entirely lost the idea of how difficult textiles themselves are to create and also clothing. So researching this is absolutely fundamental, I think, to having a sort of understanding of dress history. And that particular approach, which is known as experimental archaeology, which is about recreating things from the past using the same tools and ideally the same materials that would have been used in the original time period. This can give us so much insight into the past in terms of how labour was organised, how long things would take, how expensive things might be, because, you know, things that take a really long time are obviously going to cost more money. So it's incredibly eye-opening and it's the same with cosmetics as well. Recreating these products, recreating these procedures can really give us a sense of how people lived in the past and how much time they were dedicating to these kinds of pursuits. And based on the extensive research you seem to do into recreating historic costumes, would you say that you're approaching a pretty approximate version of what you're trying to create each time? It really varies from time to time. Some materials, some fabrics simply don't exist anymore. So you have to get the sort of closest approximate version that you can. Broadly, it would be the case that the longer ago you're trying to recreate something from, the more difficult it might be to replicate it exactly. Because techniques may have been lost, may have just simply been forgotten, and we're trying to re-understand how these things were created, or materials may no longer be available. So it's very much on a case-by-case basis, but even if you can't create it to be an exact replica, the actual process itself is hugely illuminating. So for all these fashion historians who are about to um, start signing up for university courses and um, maybe working part-time as a model or, or as a fashion journalist, what's the best way that they can really stand out? They, do they need to spend much money? Well, they don't need to spend much money at all. Dress how you want to dress. That is certainly my mantra. Whatever you feel comfortable wearing, whatever makes you feel good. I would definitely always recommend secondhand shopping. It's, you know, a more sustainable option. We're making way too many clothes at the moment. So shopping in charity shops or vintage stores or secondhand clothes markets is a great way to both get a bargain, get something that's, you know, maybe no one else has, and is also sort of slightly more sustainable 
way. So that would always, for everyone, not just budding fashion historians, but for everyone, that would be a method of shopping that I fully endorse. (laughs) You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you want to find out more about the history of fashion and makeup, you can check out our videos on our YouTube channel, where you can also see Amber's new video on Georgian makeup. We're back next week, meeting the team behind our legendary Jousts events. Until then, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. Thanks for listening. See you next time.